Good morning. He is risen. What a great day this is. My name is Lance Waldy, if you're visiting, the pastor of Harvest Bible Church. Uh, if you're visiting, welcome. I also need to translate if you were here for the announcements. We support CareNet. I don't know what CareNet is, but CareNet. I have no idea what CareNet is, but CareNet is what we support. Ah, <laughs> oh, these Englishmen, what are you going to do with them? Folks, strap on your seatbelts. Harvest Bible Church is a Bible church. You may or may not know what a Bible church is. Bible church is a church where we study the Bible. Uh, we love God's Word. We do not worship God's Word. Some have said, but we worship the God who inspired it. We appreciate the prophets and apostles who wrote it under God's inspiration. We believe that God reveals himself in the Bible and has done from the beginning. Not his beginning, because God has no beginning. We begin with the premise of God. It's the only place to begin. Uh, The only logical explanation for how anything can be that exists at all is that there is an eternal creator. Where did God come from? It's an absurd question. God is eternal. God has no beginning. He is the answer of how and why there can be anything and not nothing. So we begin with God. God. Such a great God who creates, does what he has done. Created as he has created. Just a a camera under the ocean to see the, the colors of the fish. You ever seen those? The creativity of our God. He loves colors. The springtime. Likes green grass, certainly down south. He loves humid weather, especially down south. (laughs) Everything you see, he loves dry deserts. He likes dry climates. He likes deserts. God loves all things. He's created all things. He loves people as the pinnacle of his creation. He loves black people. He loves white people. Every color and shade in between. He created them. He created us. That is where we begin in a Bible church, with God. In the beginning, the Bible says that God created the heavens and the earth. Time and space. Time and space are something. And God made them. And He began. And I've given you an outline that you look at it and you go, whoa, that's copy dense. But let's look at it. Normally, I have my Bible in my hand, and we go verse by verse, but today I'm going to cover Genesis to Revelation. You'll be very happy I'm not going verse by verse. (laughs) What this day commemorates is a climax of history, a climactic event that God began at creation in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He was there. He made it. It all began. And on the sixth day of his creation, he made man. He didn't make woman, yet, later on the sixth day he did. But he made man so the man could figure out that it's not good for the man to be alone. So he made a helper for him. Out of his own body, he made a woman. And they were both, the Bible says, naked and without shame. Why shouldn't they be? There's no sin There's no one spouse making fun of the other for putting on a few extra pounds. There's no making fun. There's no stickers on the ground. You don't need shoes. The sun is not going to burn the skin. You don't need to move one branch from point A to point B to make a shelter. Everything is perfect. And so in the beginning, the first bullet point there in 1A is that God made everything innocent. The age of innocence, sadly it didn't last long. Man was innocent. And God gave him and put him in a garden and made it beautiful and said, all of this is yours. Live however you want. One caveat, don't eat from that tree over there. What tree, Lord? They didn't ask this, I'm adding this part. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that tree. Well, you guessed it. They ate from that tree. That was the tree that they were found hanging around. And when they ate of it, they went from a state of innocence without sin to a conscience whereby they knew they had done something wrong. How do we know they knew they'd done something wrong? Because they began to cover themselves with leaves. Whereas before they were naked and unashamed, now they know they're naked. Now they feel shame 
because they have rebelled and sinned against God. And so God went from dealing with these people out of their innocence to with a conscience. And those animals that they were in the garden with, that they lived happily with, lions, tigers, bears. You see, back then, no one ate meat. It's just trees, berries, leaves. That's what was edible. No one ate meat because there was no death, because there was no sin. And so, in order to cover these people, to cover their sin, God killed an animal in their presence and covered them with the, the skins of those animals. It must have been a horrific sight for Adam and Eve to see an animal that they were probably very familiar with die in their presence. Blood spilled everywhere. God butchering this animal, tearing the skins off in order to cover them for their sin. God, in the very beginning, atoning for the sin of people with a sacrificial animal. You see, from the very beginning where the climax comes with Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so God deals with these people through conscience. That's what's on your your outline there. From innocence to conscience, it begins in Genesis 1.26 where God created man in his image, and it ends in Genesis 3.6 when man sins. From the conscience, unfortunately, the conscience didn't keep people from sinning. Did it keep you from sinning? Our conscience today just tells us we've sinned. And if you keep doing what your conscience tells you not to do, the conscience gets less and less powerful until such a time as it's seared, a seared conscience, like the calluses on your hands or your feet. It no longer feels anything. So conscience didn't do a whole lot because Adam and Eve at this point had two children. At least two that, were, that are named. I believe they had many more. But Cain and Abel are the ones we know about. Cain became jealous of Abel. Cain was ungodly. Abel was a godly man. And because Abel offered sacrifices to God that were acceptable to God, and Cain, even though he also offered sacrifices to God, he was not an atheist. He offered sacrifices to God. But God found no satisfaction in Cain's offering. Cain was offering what he felt like offering. Abel gave God what he wanted. So Cain went out and killed his son, his brother, I should say. Killed him. The first murder in the Bible. And from there, it just gets worse. So the conscience wasn't governing people's actions to the point where they were no longer sinning. Cain dies, or I should say Abel dies at the hands of Cain. And from there, you see this conscience move to government there in 1B. Moves to government. That means it moved all the way to the days of Noah. That first murder with Cain over Abel got so horrific by the, by the days of, of Noah in Genesis 6, about a spread of 1,500 years, by the way. Even though it's just separated by two or three chapters in the Bible, it's about 1,500 years. 1,500 years of murdering and violence. Sounds like today, doesn't it? In fact, it's worse then than it is today because God brought it to it, or it came to a point where God brought it to an end. In the days of Noah, Noah found favor in God's eyes. He lived in a day where people hated each other and had no, had no regard for God, disregarded God. And so God flooded the earth, saved Noah, his wife, and their three sons, and they had three wives. Eight people were saved so that God could start over. He flooded the entire earth. Everyone, everything died except what was on that ark, people and animals. When the waters abated, God gave a new role. We see it in Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. It's the death penalty. To govern man by. All the violence that it led up to the point of the flood, God says, now I'll make the rule. Anyone who murders another person will be killed. The death penalty. Sanctioned by God himself. That'll stop them from sinning. Well, God wasn't naive. It's just showing how sinful sin actually is, how powerful it is. In spite of the fact that something says don't do it and God said it, we still do it, do we not? And so God goes from conscience, or I should say man goes from conscience to government. And God promises, I will never destroy the earth again with a flood. When I destroy it again, it'll be with what, class? With fire. We see many fires in the book of Revelation when it does end. So God moves from government there in C to promise. In Genesis chapter 11, we've got, it ends, that that government ends with the Tower of Babel, 
where Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, go out with their wives, and they begin to multiply. But they don't spread out as God said. They decide to make a name for themselves and build a tall tower in spite of God. And they do. And God sees what they're doing, and it just snuffs it out in a heartbeat. Man thinks that man, that he can get away with rebellion, and God allows it for only so long. And he put an end to it that day. And the best way to do it that day without killing everyone was to confuse their languages. And hence we see the beginning of cultures. Shem, Ham, and Japheth begin to spread out. People spread out with the people they can understand, the various languages that God has confused. And they begin to spread out all over the earth. And then God finds a man named Abram, who was not a a God-fearer at all. He was worshiping pagan idols. But God called him. And tells him, I will separate you. And in spite of the fact that your wife is barren, you are going to bear a great nation or a nation is going to come from you. And God promises him three things. Abraham, I'm going to give you a great name. I'm going to make you a nation, a seed. A seed will come forth from you, a nation. And I'll make your name great. And I'm going to put you in the land of my choosing, the land that I want my people to be in to witness to the world my greatness. And I'm going to bless you there. So we call it land, seed, and blessing that God promised. Now the world is being governed through one man and his family, through a promise. By the way, God does not deal with us through innocence today, but he still deals with us through our conscience. God still deals with us through government, and he still deals with us through this promise. What God promised Abraham said, I will give you, Abraham, and your descendants land, seed, and blessing. You think, well, you have to come from Abraham's loins. In other words, Abraham had Isaac, and then Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob bore the 12 tribes of Israel, which was a Jewish nation today, the nation of Israel, we call Jews. I'm not a Jew. Most of you are not Jews. So how can we get into the promise of what God gave Abraham? Easy. It's found in Genesis. I'm sorry. It's found in Galatians. It started with a G. In Galatians 3. Galatians 3.16, actually. You remember John 3.16? Remember Galatians 3.16? Where God said, all who receive the Christ, by the way, Abraham had, let's put it here, I'm going to be demonstrative, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that line, just think of it as a line, and God follows that line through the genealogies, that line goes to a man named David, first king of Israel, second king of Israel, first good king of Israel, David, and that line goes all the way down through a man named Joseph and his wife Mary, who bore a very special son named Jesus, actually Joseph didn't, he was the adoptive father. So that line, that Jesus, you got Abraham in the line, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Paul says in Galatians 3.16, all who receive the seed, the actual seed of Abraham, Jesus, you receive the seed, boom, you are connected back to the promise that God gave Abraham. That promise still exists. It's for God's people through Abraham, through those, that physical lineage, if they believe And for all of us Gentiles, that's non-Jews, who receive the actual seed promised to Abraham. Did you get all that? If you've ever watched John Piper preach, he's all over the place. I'm not quite like that, but that was pretty good for me. Just a linear move back and forth. So this promise that God has goes back to Abraham, and by the way, it's still being fulfilled today. We connect ourselves to that promise through faith. And so once Abraham bears these people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob has 12 sons, they become this great nation, and they end up, because of their 11th born son, Joseph, they end up in Egypt, where they are put into captivity under the Pharaoh of the day. If you watched the Ten Commandments last week, week before, or some version of it, you saw that again. We're reminded of that. If you're not reading the Bible, sometimes you can see it on TV. And so God's nation is now in Egypt, but that's not the promised land. That's not what he promised Abraham. When he told Abraham to leave Ur of the Chaldees in modern Kuwait, he said, go up to the land I'll show you. That's modern Israel. That's the land God promised Abraham and his offspring through Isaac, not Ishmael. The war in the Middle East is easily settled when you read the Bible. It's for God's people through Abraham and Isaac, not through Abraham's other son, Ishmael. And it will become that way. And so God's people go down into Egypt. That's not where they should be. He leads them out of Egypt under Moses. In the book of Exodus, Moses dies and he brings them into the promised land under a man named Joshua. But in that 
time period where he takes them out of Egypt, he gives that nation his law because they numbered in the millions by now. When you have people that are that large, a group of people that large, they need to be governed. You know, when we started this church, that we started with 35 or so people. We didn't need a bunch of rules and, and mandates, and you can't do this, can't We were all friends. We all knew each other. Of the 35, 22 of us were adults. The rest were children anyway. But as it gets bigger, you have to add certain things. Well, we can't do that. We can't do this. Let's not have that. Let's not have this. As things get bigger, you need laws, rules, bullet points. God gave his law. Within the law that he gave his people, who are still sinful people, he showed them how to worship. When you read the book of Leviticus, I know, you read Leviticus and you go, this is a good book to read when I'm dealing with insomnia. But you should put over the above of that, over the top of where it says Leviticus, the book of worship. It's God telling his people, this is how I'm to be worshiped. You will bring this sacrificial offering when you do that. You will bring that sacrificial offering when you do this. Here's how I want to be worshiped. I won't put up with any negotiation. Nadab and Abihu found that out in Leviticus chapter 10. They decided to offer this incense when God said, I want that incense. And when they did, God killed them. And he showed right there, I am not a God to be negotiated with. My word is my word. Do as I say, or there is a penalty. But God did give some resolution for the penalty of sin or for the the, the act of sin. Within the law that God says, this is how you'll behave. And he says, I want you to look better than everyone on the planet because you're my people. I want you to shine the light in the promised land to the entire world and let the world come to Israel and worship this God. When you mess up, when you sin, God factored into their sin, their ways or their propensity to sin, a sacrificial system. Bring an animal. When you sin, you won't die for it. Bring an animal to die in your place. And so they did. A whole system throughout Leviticus and Exodus. And you come in and you will mediate, have your sins mediated by a priest. There's God, there's you, and there's a priest that mediates between man and God. Bring your animal to a priest. The priest will find substitutionary atonement and God is appeased. God, a priest, people. And so that was the system. This system of blood sacrifices, that's the law. Did the law curb sin? Not at all. Israel did not shine the light brightly. Israel moved from the law, and they, had, uh, they were governed after Joshua. They were ju- governed by the judges. You read about that in the book of Judges. You read about when Moses died and then how Joshua took over in the book of Joshua. The book that follows after that in the Bible is the book of Judges. The judges ruled the, uh, in Palestine. They were somewhat godly men, and they brought the nation back to the worship of God, but when the judge would die, the people would go awry again. They would begin to sin horribly and rebelliously. And Ruth is factored in there. Her, her context is within the context of, the, of the, uh, the judges, the first part of 1 Samuel. Samuel, this great man of God, whose mother abandoned him when he was just weaned with the priest Eli. We parents ought to think about that. Uh, think about that. We try to manipulate our kids, and they're going to be great because we're going to hover over them and make them great. Think about Hannah when she handed over Samuel. You've just weaned your child. Let's just say he's five at the oldest. Let's drop him off of Eli. And if you've ever studied Eli and his sons, they were godly men, were they not? Ladies, can you imagine dropping your son off? Your little baby boy, little baby girl, with those guys? Oh, but when God's hand is on people the protective hand of God, and made this Samuel one of the greatest men the Bible knows. Samuel was the last judge of Israel, and after he died, he had anointed Saul as king. And so Israel was governed by King Saul, who was a horrible king, who gave way to David, who was the greatest of Israel's king, who was governed by Solomon, who was the wealthiest of Israel's kings. And so you've got this monarchy. It was ruled by prophets and priests and then kings, all under the law of God. The kings that were good tried to bring people back to the law. The prophets were going out like a preacher of of modern day telling people to repent of their sins. You read about those prophets? Every prophet in the Bible is calling people to repentance. You're in sin. Come back and God will bless you. Could we preach the same message today? I mean, if I pattern my ministry after anyone, I pattern them after Old Testament prophets. Here's where you're sinning. Here's how you can get it right, and here's the blessing that will come if you do. 
That's what any preacher or evangelist should give to anyone in any period of time. Read the prophets and you'll see them saying this over and over. I recognize some are long and they say the same things over and over, sometimes poetically. But how beautiful it is to hear the prophets preach. All under the law, trying to bring people back to the law. And the people are trying to figure out, why can't we keep the law? Why can't we keep the law? Why can't we be perfect? Why can't any of us look in the mirror and say, perfect guy staring back at me. Perfect gal. Sin is so powerful. It's overtaken us. We see in the law of God a need for salvation. God, I am at the end of myself. I cannot keep your law with perfection. I need you. We need God's mercy. And so from government to promise, promise to the law. The law is given there in Exodus 19 too at the on Mount Sinai to Moses. And from the law, when the law comes down to at the end of your Old Testament, you're in Malachi who's calling people to repentance. And with everything we know about the Jews and their nation, they're asking Malachi, we're sinners? When did we do that? When did we not give to the Lord? When did we not give worship to the Lord or money to the Lord? When did we rip someone off? And Malachi's got to be going, are you people dense? What is wrong with you? Don't, Don't we ask that today? Do you watch the news and go, what is wrong with you people? We're living in insanity, are we not? We can see that we've come to the end of ourselves And then there's 400 silent years where there's no prophet on the scene after Malachi until a man named John the Baptist appears on the scene. The last Old Testament prophet, if you will, I know he's written about in the New Testament, but he's still of the Old Testament. John the Baptist, born to Zacharias and Elizabeth, another barren woman who miraculously gave birth to this John the Baptizer. And so we move from the law John begins to to preach, and he says, look, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He said, my job is to go forth as a herald and announce the coming of the Messiah. That's what Isaiah chapter 40 speaks of. Isaiah 40 verses 3, 4, and 5 speaks of a prophet who will come. By the way, Isaiah was written in 700 B.C. John the Baptist comes on the scene in what we would call the first century, 700 years later, and he's saying, I'm that guy, the one who comes after me, listen to him. So he's like someone who would go before the way, like if this aisle was, was cluttered with, with things or baby carriages or, or whatever, someone would go forth and say, Lance is going to walk out of here, let me go before you to clean the way so that you can walk through, Lance. That's what a herald does. John the Baptist's ministry was to go before the Messiah. The Messiah was not to ever just appear on the scene. He had to have a herald go before him. And John the Baptist was that guy. He's pivotal. Without John the Baptist, Jesus is not the Messiah. You have to have John the Baptist. And John the Baptist not only cleared the way, he pointed to the Messiah. John 1.29, John the Baptist is out preaching, and he sees Jesus walk by in the distance after he had baptized him. This is 40 days later. This is after Jesus has been baptized and gone off in the wilderness. He's come back from his 40 days of fasting in the wilderness. And John sees him and he says, behold, I can just see him pointing at it. Behold, as Jesus walks, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's what I told you about in the Old Testament. See, in the Old Testament, when you sin, you bring a lamb. And you couldn't bring the three-legged lamb that you had no use for in your flock. You had to bring a perfect lamb without spot or blemish. The perfect lamb. That was the only sacrifice that would do with the priest that mediated between God and man. Bring a perfect sacrifice. Jesus now of Nazareth, born of the Virgin Mary, raised no sin whatsoever, no sin in his life. John the Baptist looked at him and said, the lamb of God. He doesn't say the guy or that good dude. Look at that really nice man over there. He's going to die for our sins. He dubs him the Lamb of God. That goes back to the Old Testament. Those lambs couldn't take away sin from the Old Testament. That lamb takes away the sin of the world. And John the Baptist pointed to him. And so Jesus gives his ministry. He demonstrates who he is. In fact, John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Greek says, in the beginning was the Lagos. And it says, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. 
That logos is God. There's God and there's the logos and the logos is God. He's with God. It's part of the Trinity, what we call the triune God. One God who exists eternally in three distinct persons, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. And then John 1.18 says this, or John 1.14, it says, and the Logos became flesh. Remember, the Logos is God. He was with God. He is God. The Logos became flesh. God became man. And then John 1.18 says that the Logos that became flesh was sent to explain God. The Greek word is exegesis. Exegesis. That's what we pastors do all week. When we bring a sermon, we've done an exegesis on the text. We've looked at it. We've brought out the meaning. We are going to describe the meaning of the text. That's an exegesis, an exegetical sermon that we speak expositorily. (sighs) Sounds so, so lofty. Just some guy telling you what the Bible says, right? Jesus is the exegesis of God. He is explaining God. He is God. The Logos became flesh. He is the Lamb of God. How is He going to take away the sin of the world? How did the the Lamb in the Old Testament take away the sins of the people? Or at least atone for them? It died. He didn't just poke a lamb in the back and let it bleed and take it back home and let it recover. You killed it. You slit its throat. The blood poured out. The Lamb is dead. There is death for sin. Pictured in the Old Testament, and now this God has become flesh. And John the Baptist calls him the Lamb of God. Not some guy, not a nice man, the Lamb of God. And so Jesus gives his ministry. He explains God to the people. That's what we read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The first four books of the, Old, of the New Testament, the Gospels. The word means the good news. Jesus explains God. He performs miracles. He makes blind people see. He brings the dead to life. He tells people he can forgive sins, and he does. And he demonstrates by forgiving sins, at the same time healing those who are so oppressed by sin that couldn't walk, now they can walk. Who are so oppressed by the sins that they couldn't see, they can see. No one was sick in Palestine in Jesus' day. Everyone, believers and unbelievers, brought the sick. Jesus healed them. He explained God. God is a God of healing. And so what did they do to him? Make him king? Well, they thought he might be king. But they wanted a king simply of political power. And so they wanted Jesus to come into town and expel the Romans who were leading the nation. They ruled the world and they, were, they had infiltrated Israel, God's promised land. And so the Jews thought, well, the Messiah is going to come in and, and give us, he's going to be the next great president. He's going to give us all we need. We're going to go back to where we were and we don't have to worry about the Romans anymore. And when he came into town on the Monday before he died, the people hailed him. They said, Hosanna to God. Glory to God in the highest. Here's our king. But he didn't go in and set up his kingdom. At least not according to the way the people wanted it done. He went into town and he was crucified. The same people that called for his, for, or were saying, Hosanna, that is save now, God. God, save now, Hosanna. Glory to God. Hosanna in the highest. The same people that said that on Monday were crying out on Friday, crucify him. He disappointed them. Some of you are here today. You've been presented a Jesus that's false. You're disappointed in Jesus. He let you down. You didn't get what you wanted. Someone you loved died even though you prayed for them to live. Your job that you loved, you lost. The house that you lived in is gone. God didn't give you what you wanted. Poor you. You poor, pathetic things. God gave us life. He gave us salvation. People die, don't they? Maybe you pray them back to life, but they're going to die again. Maybe not again, but later on they're going to die. We live in a world where God is not here to be our genie. Rub the lamp. Say the right words. God, give me what I want. Okay. We don't have the right to say, God, you didn't give me what I wanted, so I'm done with you, to shake our fists at God. God does not negotiate. Why would we want him to negotiate? Why would we, in our sinful, selfish desires, want to change the mind of the Almighty? Isn't prayer more about us waiting for him to change us? 
as opposed to us trying to change him. Why would I want to? I don't want to change God's mind. But if God is going to do something amazing and powerful through my prayers, I'm going to pray. That's why I pray. Not only that's why, but I get to talk to God, and he hears me as he hears every one of you who pray in the name of Christ. So Jesus reveals this, teaches about prayer. We've looked at the last couple of weeks here at Harvest. But they killed him. They crucified him. The Lamb of God. And you know what day he died on? He died on the Passover. Not a random day. What does that mean, Lance? Well, if you go back to Genesis or to Exodus chapter 12, back when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, God set them free through the Exodus. That means exit. They exited Egypt. After he had performed 10 plagues on Pharaoh and his people, on his, his hardened heart, at the 10th plague, Pharaoh said, fine, leave, go. His land is devastated. The firstborn in every flock of the animals and the firstborn son in every family is dead. And Pharaoh says, leave. And so they leave. And they celebrated the night they left the Passover. What is the Passover? The Passover was that, that ritual that God gave Moses. He said, Moses, look, tonight, before you leave Egypt tomorrow, tonight, the only people that are leaving are going to be the ones that take blood from a lamb, kill a lamb, take the blood, put it on a paintbrush, and paint the doorpost of your house. Paint it. Moses had to be going, wait, what? Just do what I said, Moses. And so Moses tells Israel, and they go out, they kill a lamb, and they paint the doorpost of their house. And so God sends what's called the death angel. The death angel flies over Egypt that night. But he passed over every house that had the blood of the lamb on it. Do you see the significance? The Passover, the, the, it passed over, and they lived because of faith. They may not have understood it. Really, I need to paint blood on this poor lamb. This poor lamb was going to go out with us, and now you want it to die? Yes, the lamb must die. The blood must be shed for the Passover, the death angel to pass them over. So they did. The next day, they left Egypt. Jesus died on April the 3rd, A.D. 33, which is, according to the Bible, Nisan 14, the day of the Passover. While the people were, were slaying all the Passover lambs in Israel, in Jerusalem, the Passover lamb of God was dying between the time of 3 o'clock in the afternoon to 5 o'clock when the Passover lambs were sacrificed. The Passover lamb. So he dies. People think it's over. But no, the lamb of God was in the tomb. What was left of Friday, all day Saturday, which is the Sabbath in Israel, was resurrected on the first day of the week. The empty tomb. It's what Joel read. The empty tomb. The women came, Mary and the other Mary came to visit the tomb to anoint Jesus' body with spices. They figured the Roman guard will roll that heavy old stone out of the way. They'll go in and anoint his body. They came. There were no Roman guards. The guards had run off. What they saw scared them to death. They did see an angel, too, actually. And they said, the most smart aleck question ever asked, what are you doing looking for the living among the dead? Isn't that a smart aleck question? He must have been grinning ear to ear. Uh, ladies, why are you looking for the living among the dead? This is where dead people come. Your Lord that you're looking for is alive. If that's not the cherry on top for who God is, what else do you need? I don't believe that resurrection. Okay, you live 2,000 years later, and you know so much 2,000 years after it happened that you can say, I know those eyewitnesses didn't see anything. I don't know them, and I'm 2,000 years removed from them, but they didn't see it. How arrogant is that? Who are you to say that? Do you believe that George Washington was our first president? Anyone in here know George? Anyone in here alive when George was president of the United States? Well, how can you prove he was the president? Or Abe Lincoln, anyone here? There might be a few Civil War leftovers here. <laughs> no one here knew Abe Lincoln either. How do you know he was the president when the Civil War was underway? You believe what the eyewitnesses said and wrote. The eyewitnesses saw a dead man. 
And three days later, they saw him alive. Not walking around Israel with his hip out of joint, a big huge gash in his side, his hands and feet pierced, his back bloodied going, I'll be okay in a few weeks. No, the risen Lord God Almighty in his glorified body saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. The climax that we study and celebrate today. Well, we looked at the past. We saw the present. That's where we are today. We're in the day of the gospel. But the law of God went to Christ in the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit of God being poured out into, into believers. Before the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament came and went. We saw him with, the, with the King Saul. God put his Spirit on Saul. Saul never obeyed God. And so God took his spirit from him. After David sinned with Bathsheba, he prays to God. We see it in Psalm 51. And he says something that you and I never have to say. He says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. You know the song. We even sing an old song back in the 80s. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. We don't ever have to sing that. That's not a problem for us. But David saw the Spirit of God leave Saul. And David committed so heinous a sin, not only his adultery, but his murder, his dishonoring his family and his nation and his God. And he was fearful. Lord, please don't take your Spirit away from me as you took it away from Saul. And God didn't. God made a covenant with David as he made one with Moses. David, everyone who sits on your throne from your loins, I promise from now to eternity, a house, a kingdom, and a throne. Isn't it wonderful that through the line of David, if you take David here, follow that line, Jesus of Nazareth was born king of Israel. That house, that nation, that throne, that unconditional covenant, Jesus sits on it. And so the Spirit of God, as opposed to then, is now baptizing people who believe. All who believe baptizes us, regenerates us, fills us, seals us, indwells us. The Spirit of God. That's the world in which we are in today. That's the dispensation, if you will, that we live in today. I've called it the, the, the Christ uh, from the law to the Christ and the giving of the Spirit. The age of the Spirit. That's our present day. And that will end, by the way, with the rapture of the church. What? The rapture of the church. In a moment in time, at a time when we don't know that there are no signs that precede it, at a moment in time, God will take everyone who believes from this planet, which, by the way, aren't that many. I think there'll be a, a little blip on the radar down in the South Texas, southern part of the United States. No blip at all in California. <laughs> None in Oregon. None in New Orleans. People aren't going to be gone. There's no going to be anyone to miss. There'll be some news somewhere, but the people we used to know in Texas are gone. Down in South Texas, you get up above Dallas, you're in Yankeeville anyway. (laughs) I'm teasing. Some people in Amarillo are okay too, but... uh, (laughs) You got to figure out there's not that many, or you have to figure there's not that many people that are going to go in the rapture. There's just not many people who believe today. There aren't enough churches today preaching the gospel. They're out preaching an anti-gospel, trying to include everyone, bring everyone in. God loves everyone. God has shown his love for everyone, but he only saves those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rapture of the church that day, in the blink of an eye, all of God's people who are living will meet Jesus in the clouds. And you know who's there to greet us? Every one of our loved ones who died before us, who were in Christ. And what follows from that point is what we call the tribulation time period. The book of Revelation, chapter 6 through 19, speaks of it in great detail. That age awaits us. So this age ends with the rapture of the church. There's an interim period called the tribulation. And then when Jesus returns at the end of that seven years, it's the age of the kingdom. The kingdom of God described in Revelation chapter 19 and 20. And then it goes beyond into eternity in chapters 21 and 22 of the book of Revelation. The Lamb of God returns. What does He come to return? He comes to marry the church, to marry His people. The groom and the bride are married, and you know there's this feast that occurs that we look forward to with the Lord's Supper. We not only look backwards to Jesus' death in the Lord's Supper, we look forward to the meal we'll have with Him 
Because Jesus said on the night before he died, he says, gentlemen, as he's taking the Passover feast, that he would die on, on that day and that time. He tells them, guys, I'm not going to drink this fruit of the vine again until I come again in my kingdom. I'm not going to drink it again with you until I come again in my kingdom. And so when he returns, we have that meal. We're looking forward to that meal. We look back to the wonderful death of Christ because he is the Lamb of God. Our belief in him takes away our sins. Anyone here a sinner? Got a few sins in your life? Even if you can only count two or three. Not only are you deluded, but you are... Well, we won't finish that. But even if you've only got two or three that that are outlandish to you, God demands perfection. Demands it. We have to be perfect to live with Him. Well, Lance, we can't be perfect. No, we cannot. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. That's why we all die. You ever wondered why babies die? As horrible as it is, because they're born sinners. They're born with sin, as we all are. Oh, they didn't do anything to die. They're born in sin. You don't have to teach a baby to sin. You don't have to teach your child to sin. It's inherent for a baby to say no. It's inherent for a baby to hit another child. You don't have to teach him that, do you? Come here and give your daddy a kiss. No. But you tell him, don't you dare come give me a kiss. And they'll come give you a kiss. Who taught him that? They're born with the cancer of sin. We are born with a need to have our sins removed. And God becoming flesh did that. That's the point. And he didn't die and remain dead as Joel so beautifully prayed, thank you for the empty cross. No one should walk around with a cross with Jesus on it. He ain't on it. Any more so than you should walk around with a tomb that he's in. He's not in that either. He's gone from there. These are symbols of our salvation. His death is not even something to cry over. It's something to rejoice over. His death is our life. His death is our life, and he's not dead anymore. As I put here in the outline, I want you to see, just keep it for, on file. I want my outlines to be uh, not something just as basic, but it's something you can tuck away and study, look at. I'm trying to make you feel bad. Keep up with it. He is the rock. In the Old Testament, when the wilderness, when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, and they had no water, and they're crying out, Moses, we, we had plenty of water in Egypt. Moses talks to a rock, and the rock springs forth water. When's the last time you saw water, or a water pouring forth a rock? When's the last time you saw a rock pouring forth water? You don't. And we see from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, the apostle Paul says, by the way, since the word was existing with God in the beginning, John 1, 1 and 2, That Jesus that you think had birth with Mary, oh no, he's always existed because he is God. And he was the rock giving water to the people in the wilderness. The bread of life, the bread that was given out of heaven, Jesus says in John 6, you know, the manna, the Israelites ate the manna in the wilderness because they didn't have a super Walmart in the wilderness wanderings. They needed bread given to them. They had no place to go. God poured it out each day. And Jesus says in John 6, the bread that Moses gave, that's me. I'm that bread. I'm the bread of life. He tells the people in the Gospels, he says, that light that shone forth, that guided the way at night for the Israelites to know where to go in their wandering, Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the light of the world. I existed then. I exist now. I am eternal. Jesus is God. The spotless lamb of the Old Testament is the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Jesus, our Lord. That salvation, you remember the story in in Numbers 21? What? Numbers is a book in the Bible? (laughs) I'm I'm just being silly. I know you all know Numbers 21. They're wandering the wilderness. They're near the end of their 40-year wanderings. But they continue to rebel. And so God sends snakes on the land. And the snakes bite. And they're poisonous. And people are dying. I think it's 20,000 plus people are dying. And God tells Moses, Moses, take a big stick, a standard, and stab it in the ground. And tell the people, if they will look to that standard after their bit, I'll save them. What? Stick in the ground, Moses, just do what I say. 
So Moses put a standard. He stuck it in the ground. He told all Israel, look to the standard in faith. If you're reeling of a snake bite and you hear, yeah, honey, I just heard Moses say, if you'll look over there at that stick, what? I'm dying here. I'm supposed to look at a stick? Yes, look at the stick and you will be saved. Sounds silly, doesn't it? And when they did, they were saved. You know what John 3.16 says, don't you? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Do you know what John 3.15 says? For as Moses lifted up the standard in the wilderness, whereby people looked at it and got saved, so too, when you look to Christ, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. He's connecting it to what happened in Numbers, a book you never read. Numbers 21. It's connected As people receive salvation by looking with faith to that standard, we with faith look to and receive Jesus for salvation. Old Testament connects to New Testament every page over and over. It's one book, 66 different titles, one book. He is the light. He is the the bread. He is the rock. He is the standard on that cross. Look to Christ on the cross. The good shepherd David speaks of in Psalm 23. Jesus says in John 10, I am the good shepherd. There's only one God. It's not God and Jesus. They are the same. I believe in God and I've heard about Jesus. No, you've heard about God. You've heard about Jesus. If you've not heard about Jesus, you've not heard about God. Jesus is God. If God says, I am the good shepherd, or David says it in Psalm 23, the good shepherd... The Lord is my shepherd. Yahweh is my shepherd. And then Jesus says, I am the good shepherd in John 10. They are one. No wonder they tried to kill him in John 10. Because he equated himself with God. The one God in the Old Testament says, I am the beginning and the end. We sang the song, Alpha and Omega. God says, there is no one beside me. Isaiah 41, 43, 44, 46, 48. He says it over and over. There is one God. I and no other. There is no one beside me. I am the beginning and the end. I am the first and the last. Interesting that Jesus says the same thing. Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. I am the beginning and the end. I was dead and I came back to life. When did God die? On the cross. He says at the end of Revelation, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. Old Testament, New Testament, God of the Old Testament, Jesus Christ our Lord, one God. The one God came to die for us because he couldn't find a man or woman that was perfect. He had to be the perfect sacrifice to fulfill his own law. And such a God would not remain dead. He cannot remain dead. He died on the cross and rose on the third day. I close with this passage. The Apostle Paul, writing in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 9, right in the middle of a context, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So do you just say, all right, I'll give it a try. Jesus is Lord. Are you saved? No. No, you're not. You see, what you confess with your mouth must be believed in your heart. You confess with your tongue that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, and believe in your heart that God the Father raised God the Son from the grave. Then you shall be saved. Do I need to give my 10%? No. Do I need to get baptized? No. Ask the thief on the cross. He'll tell you it didn't need to be baptized. Never gave 10%. In fact, thief on the cross stole from people. Well, do I need to go to church for six weeks? Do I need to be a member of a church? No. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you shall be saved. He's the living God. He loves, so He came to do what you and I can't do. He lived our life perfectly. He loves. He came back to life and he holds out his arms and he offers eternal life to all who believe. By believing, we connect ourselves with his life and his victory is ours. Some of you have heard me give this example over and over. I'll give it again. Many of us are sports fans. 
I love the Houston Astros. Always follow the Astros. And I follow God's team, the Dallas Cowboys. And I always will. Shame on me, I know. And I wear certain paraphernalia. I put on the hat. Put on the shirt. My socks. I have Dallas Cowboys socks. It reminds me that they stink. (laughs) But my identification with these teams... By wearing the the jerseys and paraphernalia and going to their games, I'm identifying with them. And when they win, I win. Because I'll say it, we won. Astros won. We're world champions. I never stepped up to the plate. I never threw a pitch. I never caught a ball. But we won. My identification with those teams means that their victory is my victory. Because I relished it. I I found I'm shallow enough (laughs) to find joy in the victory of people I never knew and never will meet. And so did many of you. Our identity with Christ, our identification with Him is through faith. You don't have to wear a hat that says, I love Jesus, or put a fish on the back of your car, or an uptown, side-down Darwin fish. You don't need that. Our identification with Jesus is faith. Old Testament believers simply believed God. They didn't just believe in God, or that there was a God. They believed God. What God said they believed In the New Testament, it's the same way. We believe God. We don't just believe in a God. We believe God. What He said, we believe. What He did, we believe. And that is our connection, our identification. That is our salvation. Let's pray. Lord, if there be any here today who needed a clearer explanation of the gospel, give it to them through someone else, someplace else. Open their minds. We just pray that you would open their minds to the truth. I pray, Lord, for those who are in Christ, all of us who are in Christ, strengthen us. We live in a dark day. Make us courageous to go and preach the gospel, come what may. It's not popular. More and more we take our lives in our own hands by going out and being bold with the gospel. May nothing deter us. We do not live for this world. We live for you. And if it not be true, up till today, may it be true today and going forward. You are risen. Oh God, you are risen indeed. There is no greater news. I pray, Lord, that that wonderful, amazing, and awesome news would overwhelm any sickness we're enduring, would overwhelm any infirmity we're dealing with, would overwhelm any lack of money, lack of job, or bereavement that we are experiencing. The fact that you are alive That's all the good news we need. May we rejoice in it and praise your holy name from here on out. This we pray in Jesus' name, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas.